Christmas and we got halfway through chapter 2 and then we entered into Advent season, Christmas season. So we focused on uh, the coming of Christ. But now we're returning back to Galatians and finishing where we left off. So I know there's been a little break, but that's okay. We'll just continue on. There's a great story about the reformer John Calvin. He was preaching in Geneva and he was going through a book of the Bible. I don't, I don't know which one it was. And then he was banished from Geneva because of persecution. And then he came back three years later and he entered into the pulpit and he picked up at the very next verse where he left off three years ago like he never left. So, uh, this is an ancient strategy of uh, just preaching right through, uh, right through the Scriptures and picking up where you left off even if there was a little, a little break in between. Not that I'm comparing myself to John Calvin. <laughs> Galatians 2, beginning of verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified, or excuse me, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if we, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for that great promise in Isaiah that says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall My Word be that goes forth from My Word. It shall not return to Me empty, but it shall accomplish that purpose for which I sent it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, Father, with that great promise in mind, we present Your Word this morning. We ask Your blessing to accompany it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Since we haven't been in the book of Galatians for a few weeks, let me remind you of the context, um, the background that's taking place in this passage. In Galatians 2, verses 1-10, through 10, the Apostle Paul has been opposed by false brothers, as they're referred to in verse 4, and they were distorting the true gospel. 
Now, what is the true Gospel? Let me say right away that I never tire of telling you what the true Gospel is. Because apart from this true Gospel, there is no salvation. So I've gone over this a hundred times and you say, are you going to go over it a hundred times again? And the answer is, yes, as long as I have breath, I'm going to go over it a hundred times again. The Gospel, in a nutshell, can be summarized this way. We are saved from the wrath of God because of our sin by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, regardless of any work we may or may not perform. We are saved by faith alone, not by works. But let me clarify that while we are saved by faith alone, we are also saved unto good works. If you have your Bibles and if you're in Galatians, turn ahead to the next book, Ephesians. And Paul summarizes being saved by faith alone apart from good works, but being saved unto good works in Ephesians 2, 8-10. through 10. Paul says in Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then Paul says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. Or excuse me, in them. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith, not a result of works. This is a gift of God so that no one can boast. But then he makes it very clear that we are God's workmanship. Now, just for a moment, if I can have you put your Greek glasses on. You may recall that the New Testament was written in Greek and there's a great Greek word here. It's translated workmanship here, but it's the word poema. We get the English word poem from it. It could also be translated works of art. God has taken us rough pieces of rock and He's taken out His hammer and His chisel and slowly but surely in Jesus Christ, He's chipping away at us, transforming us so that we will reflect Jesus more and more and He's renewing us after His image so that we can do good works. So we're not saved by good works, but we're saved to good works. And you say, what are those good works? Well, the passage is interesting. God prepared them in advance. We need to just walk in them. So if I can just be very practical, very simple, this is what we should do. Go through your day Monday. I don't know what your day is Monday, but just go through the day, walking through the day, looking for opportunities to do whatever God has for you to do. The opportunities are there. Just open your eyes and look for them. And this I can promise you, there will be opportunities Monday to serve God. That's why you were saved. So that you could do good work. So just look for those good works. So, if I can quote Calvin again, uh, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. Okay, going back to Galatians 2, 1 through 10. As I said, Paul being opposed by false brothers, also known as Judaizers. 
And the reason why they're called Judaizers, that technical term, is because they're saying, faith in Jesus is good, but... And right away you should get nervous. Faith in Jesus is good, but... You also need to be circumcised and you need to obey the law of Moses. That's why they're being called Judaizers. Basically, they're saying it's not good enough for Gentiles just to exercise faith in Christ. They also need to become full-fledged Jews and obey all the law of Moses if they think they're going to be justified, if they think that God is going to accept them. And that is a false gospel. Now, while in Jerusalem, Paul says that he unfolded his gospel to the pillars of the church, the bedrock of the church. Who were the pillars of the church? Uh, James, and this is James, um, the Lord's half-brother, and John and Cephas. You know him by his other name, Peter. So he presented the gospel uh, to James, to John, to Peter, and they extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. What does that mean? That means that they accepted Paul and his gospel and basically they were saying, we love what you're doing. Continue to do it more and more. You have our blessing. So that was 1 through 10. Verse 11, Paul is back in Antioch and I don't think that he ever expected to be doing what he was going to be doing in Antioch. I don't think he ever thought that he would be confronting Peter of all people, the Apostle Peter, one of the pillars of the church, about the Gospel and its implications. But here Paul is. And this is hard to believe, but Peter's behavior is actually causing a church split right down the middle so that you have Jews on this side, as it were, and you have Gentiles on that side, and they're not associating with one another. Now, we need to ask this question. What happened to Peter? What's going on here? Well, this is what we're told in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with Gentiles. So, before certain men came, that's the Judaizers, before they came, Peter was eating with Gentiles. Now, you need to understand that this, this is more than just had a meal together. You might say, well, what's the big deal about this? Well, you need to understand that eating was a sign of fellowship. It was a sign of, sign of unity. It was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of saying we're all part of the same family. We're sitting down together at the table and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So it was a very symbolic gesture. So he says before certain men came, he, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was doing that on a regular basis. He didn't have any scruples about that because they were brothers in Christ. But, when they came, he drew back and he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically right along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So, if somebody doesn't confront Peter's hypocrisy the church of Jesus Christ, imagine this, will be forever split between Jews and Gentiles. There will be two churches. There will be a Jewish church and there will be a Gentile church. And they won't worship together. They won't serve together. They won't eat together. And, if someone doesn't confront Peter, there is going to be mass confusion about the Gospel. 
people are going to wonder, well, what does it take to be justified, to be accepted before God? Is it faith alone? Is that sufficient? Or is it faith plus circumcision and obeying the law of Moses? What is it? And people are just going to be confused. They're going to be throwing up their hands. They, what do I have to do to be accepted before God? What do I have to do to be saved? People would be confused. Peter seems to be saying that it's faith alone, but look at his behavior. If it was faith alone, then he would associate with the Gentiles, and he's not. It must be that they're still unclean, that God still hasn't accepted them because faith is not enough. People would be confused by Peter's behavior because it seems to indicate faith isn't enough. What the Gentiles are doing is not sufficient enough for the Jews to accept them. So there would be terrible confusion. Now let's think about Peter's behavior. He's not eating with the Gentiles. Now, is that behavior rude? Yeah, that, that behavior is, is rude. A um, number of years ago, and by the way, I've never told this story from the pulpit before, but I'm going to tell you now because it's been a long time and this person has passed on. But uh, a number of years ago, when I first came to the church, I, I was having difficulty with a lady at a church and she was just opposing me at, at every turn that I took. And I thought, what what is going on here? And I thought, maybe if I have her over for lunch, we can sit down together and get to know each other. So, so Michelle and I invited her over the home, uh, over to the house for lunch. And if you know Michelle, you know she likes to put together a nice meal and table, you know, napkins, plate, every, everything in place. So, so she did that, and and we sat down together at the table to um, to eat together. And I was getting ready to pray, and and this woman said, "I'm not going to eat. I'm fasting." Oh, Woo! <laughs> uh, that. That's pretty rude, okay? If someone invites you over for lunch, uh, you let them know ahead of time, or you don't come. I, I'm fasting. But you know what? That, that was more than just rudeness. That was really her way of saying, uh, I'm not submitting to your authority. I'm not accepting what you... That was a very symbolic gesture uh, on her part. I mean, that, that was a slap in the face, was it not? That's what Peter's doing here. That's what Peter's doing here. He's, he's not eating with the Gentiles. That, that's more than rude. Paul says it's a denial of the Gospel. This is very significant. In 14, he says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas, and, that, and then he went out. So notice very carefully, mark this. Peter's behavior of not eating with the Gentiles was a sign of excommunication. A sign of excommunication. Turn back, if you will, 1 Corinthians 5.11. 1 Corinthians 5.11. In this passage, Paul is talking about the importance of church discipline. There's sexual immorality in the church that's not resulting in repentance. Uh, they're not disciplining it. Paul says you need to discipline it, and then he gives them instructions, and I'm not going to go through the whole passage. But in verse 11, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
So Paul says, if this person calls themselves their brother and they persist in sin and they're unwilling to repent, you know what you need to do? Don't even eat with that person as a sign that you don't accept their behavior. So here we have Paul eating with the Gentiles and then he would draw these, I'm not going to eat with you anymore. And the first, that was a sign of excommunication. That was Paul, by that gesture, is symbolizing that he doesn't accept the Gentiles as brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't accept them as part of the family. You see how serious this is? So this, this is more than just two people sitting down at a meal together. Highly symbolic gesture of what's taking place here. And Paul is right when he says, wow, you are corrupting the Gospel by refusing to eat with the Gentiles. So this was very, very serious. And I hope you see how serious this is. Well, from the message we had last time, we had three applications. And let me just remind you of them because I think these are very important. Uh, The first application is the best of men are men at best. I heard Alistair Begg say that in a message years ago and I, I never forgot it probably because of the way he said it. But it's true, isn't it? The best of men are manifest. If the Apostle Paul can distort the Gospel with his behavior, guess what? Any of us, any of us can slip and fall in, in terrible ways. And, it, and it's good to remember that. Second application The Gospel unites all people and destroys prejudice and racism. Remember, the Jews and the Gentiles, they hated each other. Great animosity. The Gospel tears that down. The Gospel destroys prejudice and racism. Let me ask you this. Does this sound familiar to anybody? See if you've heard this before. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sound vaguely familiar? I hope so. It's part of the Declaration of Independence. I was listening to a radio program uh, this last week and maybe some of you you heard it, but the question is, where, where do we get this type of philosophy or theology? Where do we get this teaching that all men are created equal. Just about everybody in our culture will say amen to that. But where do we get that? What is, what is the bedrock foundation that supports that truth? Where do we get that from? You need to know it doesn't come from anywhere. It doesn't come from evolution. What is evolution saying? Evolution also say this. We happen to be here just because some fish happened somehow to develop a leg and then he was able to crawl and evolve from there and we just happened to be here because of survival of the fish. That's not equality. That's saying that some are stronger than others and that the strongest survive and the weakest get swallowed up. Doesn't come from that. Come from Islam? Doesn't come from Islam. Islam declares that we're... And we're to oppose the infidels. What's an infidel? An infidel is anyone who's not a Muslim. There's, there's not equality in that religion. And some of you know that this month we're going to celebrate the sanctity of human life. January 22, 1973, Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court legalized abortion in this country. 
You know what that law says? Not everybody's equal. Those in the womb are not equal to those outside of the womb. And some of you even know that today you'll go to a doctor and if a woman's pregnant, the doctor will say, well, do you want, you want us to test your baby for Down syndrome? And why would we do that? Because if the child has Down syndrome, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have this handicap, it's going to be a burden to you, and if we know ahead of time, then we can just kill it in the wound. Wow! I, I guess if you have Down syndrome, I guess if you have some kind of defect, you're not really equal with those who are quote-unquote blameless. That's not equality. It's close to equality. So where does this come from? It doesn't come out of thin air. It comes from Genesis. God created man, male and female, in His image and likeness. Everybody is equal, not because they're of equal strength, equal beauty, equal intelligence, equal skills. Everybody is equal across the board in the sight of God because everybody is made in the image and likeness of God. That's where our value comes from. And I think we could say that in Jesus Christ we are doubly Equal. That's, that's my phrase. Because when we are in Christ, He does away with male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, as we see in Galatians 3.28. Or perhaps as this book on racism says, we are more than equals. How can we be more than equals? We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. I think this is so important because if you're, if you're watching the news at all these days, you know that there's division everywhere we look. There's division between the races. There's division between the sexes. There's division between the classes. And people are throwing up their hands. And what, What's the answer? How can we bring people together? And as Christians, let's realize we have the answer. The answer is the Gospel of Jesus Christ which reminds all of us that we are made in God's image. And when we bow at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. I love the story that after the Civil War, church was gathering together in the South. Time for communion. That time they would come down, receive communion. Black man came to the front all by himself, knelt down. The whole church was... <gasps> because at that time, the church was divided. Blacks on one side... Whites on the other side, and people were wondering what was going to happen. General Robert E. Lee walks down, knelt next to the black man, side by side, and received communion together. And finally, finally, the gospel opened the eyes of even Christians, we have to be honest, and brought blacks and whites together, equal footing at the cross. We have the answer. I think this is awesome. Our culture doesn't know what to do. We have the answer. It's found in creation. It's, it's found in the Gospel. Another application. Confrontation is about the Gospel. I think that's so important. It's not about the mode of baptism. It's, it's not about whether we're going to sing psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs. 
By the way, Paul says, sing them all. <laughs> but it, it, it's not about that. It's about the Gospel. Years ago, you know, I heard a counselor you know, telling parents, you know, choose your battles. Don't, don't confront your kids over every little issue. It's a great way to exasperate them. Okay, if you're going to confront somebody, I, I hope it's not over some minor detail. I hope it's over something serious. So this, this is about the Gospel. This is serious. And let me add a, a fourth application. Uh, confrontation is with the spirit of gentleness. I, I think this is important. And actually, I may have given the wrong impression a few weeks ago. Um, in verse 11, uh, Paul says that he opposed uh, Peter to his face. But I, I think we need to understand the spirit of confrontation. It's very, very important. This is what we read in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, like Peter was, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Gentleness. That's so important. I can still remember when I was a student at Moody in, in Greek class and uh, for that class, we were working through 2 Timothy. And we came to 2 Timothy 2 where Paul says to Timothy, those who oppose you, gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, bringing them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do His will. And, and, and one of my good friends was sitting next to me and he said, well, what happens if we don't do it in the spirit of gentleness? And I said, well, God is... God is gracious and He may not He may use it, but His normal means is gentleness. And if, and if we're not gentle, our harshness can actually get in the way. And I've never forgotten that. It's so important. So as we see Paul confronting Peter, I think we need to realize that he's confronting him about the Gospel, but he's also doing it with the spirit of gentleness. Now, Paul's confrontation is not only about the Gospel, and this is crucial, it is with the Gospel. He's confronting him with the Gospel. Too much confrontation, and, and tell me what you've observed, but too much confrontation I've observed is not with the Gospel, but with guilt. But with guilt. If uh, Peter was the type of person to use guilt instead of the gospel, you know what he could have said to Peter? He said, Peter, do you know how hard I've worked among the Gentiles? Do you know how hard I've been trying to carry out God's task for me? Do you know how much sweat and blood and tears I've poured into the Gentiles and you come to Antioch and, and, and you're dividing the church in half? Yeah, be guilt, right? Peter, oh, oh, what, what, what have I done to Paul? You know, if if you use that type of thing, you know, Peter could have responded in one of two ways. You know, first, angry. Well, I want you to know, I, I've worked hard among the Jews. <laughs> you know, okay, you've worked hard among the Gentiles. That's your. I've worked hard among the Jews. Or he could have been depressed. He could have saw the error of his ways. Oh, man, you're you're right. What have I done? Oh. I, <laughs> I've messed up again. I'm always messing up. I did it when Jesus was on earth. He goes to heaven. I received the Holy Spirit. I'm still messing up. And he could just, just been in a pile and said, you know what? I just, I want to, I want to give up. 
Paul didn't use guilt. He used the gospel. And that, that's so important. And, and practically, parents, when they discipline children, watch how you're confronting them. I know you got to confront them. I know you got to correct them. But I want to ask you, are you using guilt or are you using the gospel? Guilt or the gospel, those are basically your, your two options. You got a party, your kids are misbehaving, you know, you get upset in the car on the way home. Can't believe how you were behaving. Do you have any idea how that makes me look? How could you behave like that? What's that? That's, that's guilt. How you make me look, right? What's, what's the message? Dad, he cares about his reputation. You know, how, how he looks. As opposed to, you know, God doesn't want us to behave like that. God has something different in store for us. Jesus died so that we could be different. How should we behave? Let's ask for forgiveness. And you ask for forgiveness. God forgives us. Thank you. That's grace. There's all the difference in the world, isn't there? All the difference in the world. And you know what? Kids, kids know it. If you use guilt, kids just come away thinking, oh, Dad, he just cares about his, his reputation. Use the Gospel. Boy, Dad... Dad really wants us to follow Jesus Christ and, and to do the best, the best we can. Very, very important. What we confront, um, how we confront, you know, the way in which which we do it. Paul is confronting with the gospel because as he confronts with the gospel, he'll achieve the three goals that he has. And and basically, these are the three goals that Paul has. He wants to restore. The biblical doctrine of the gospel. We have to get that clear, do we not? We have to clarify that's by faith alone, not by faith plus works. He also wants to restore fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. We can't have a divided church. Everybody has to come together. And he wants to restore Peter to his ministry with boldness. So he wants to restore Peter as well so that Peter can get back on the right track. Verses 15 and 16 uh, clarify um, the gospel. Look at what what Paul says. And by the way, I know some of you have uh, the quotation marks ending at verse 14. Um, also, in, in the Greek, there are no quotation marks. We ha- we have to guess where we think it ends. I think his comments to Peter end at the end of the chapter. But regardless, notice what he says in 15 and 16 about justification. For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Notice, three times Paul says it's by faith or belief, and three times he says it's not by works. Class, can I ask you a question? What do you think Paul's trying to communicate? Okay. I, I could be wrong, but I have a sneaking suspicion that he's trying to clarify that we're justified by faith and not by works of the law. I, I think that's what, he, that's what he's trying to communicate. Do you see that in the text? Is it clear? You said, yeah, you see that. He, he's trying to be as clear as he can be. It's faith. It's not by works of the law. Verse 19, 
For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Here's Some of these verses are hard, but here's what it means. For through the law, I died. Not to obeying the law. It doesn't mean I died to the law. You know, I no longer have to worry about, you know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. It doesn't mean, hey, I died to the law. I don't have to obey that. No, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. That can't be what it, what it means. When he says, I died to the law, what he's saying is, I died to obeying the law for my acceptance to God. That's very important. I died to the law as a way of being accepted by God. Now I can live for God. Tim Keller uh, made a great observation here. Uh, Before faith came into Paul's life, he never really lived for God. He was living for himself and his salvation. See, when you're trying to be saved through works of the law, you're living for yourself. But when you're saved by faith, finally you're like, okay, I'm accepted by God, so now I'm free to just live for God and do what He's calling me to do. That's very important. Verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Through faith, we, we, we not only live, sometimes we say Jesus died so that we can live. That's true. But you know what else is true? Jesus died so that we could die. And then Jesus rose that we could rise. That's what Paul says. I was crucified with Christ. On the cross, we died with Christ. We died to our old nature. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, we rose from the dead with Him. So we die with Him and we rise with Him so that we can live a new life. That's why he goes on and he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We're going to talk about this more next week. This morning we're talking about justification by faith. Next week we're going to talk about sanctification by faith. But we need to realize that not only are we justified by faith, but we live by faith every single day. It's not as though we're saved by faith and now, okay, now I have to work really hard. No, we're, we're saved by faith and we continue on to live the Christian life by faith. But more on that next week. And then verse 21. This, this is the climax, I believe, of Paul's words to Peter. He says, I do not nullify... The grace of God. And realize grace is just unmerited favor. Perhaps a simple way to understand grace is it's just a gift. So salvation is grace. In other words, it's just a gift. We, we don't earn it. We don't work for it. We don't buy it. it. It's just a gift that is ours through faith. So he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, if we are accepted by God based on how we worked, on how obedient we were, on how faithful we were, if we were justified in that way, if we were accepted by God because of all our works, notice this, then Christ died for no purpose. I, I think at this point, Paul was like, eh. <laughs> If it's through work, the death of Christ. I mean, that's got a the death of Christ on the it was all for nothing. But of course, it wasn't for nothing because we are saved by grace. 
And here's, I want to close with this question. I remember asking this just years ago to myself. I don't know why I did, but why, why this method of salvation? Think about this. God, God is sovereign. He's, you know, he's got all wisdom and not, he could have set up salvation however he wanted. He could, he could have said, you know, it's going to be 99% faith, but, you know, there needs to be something that they do or, you know, he could have said, I don't know, he could have said 99% works and then we'll have a little, why your grace through nothing but faith? Why did God set up salvation? Why did he set up justification this way? It wasn't just arbitrarily selected. There's a good reason. But why this way? Yeah, and I hope, I hope you saw it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So, that's the purpose clause. So that, here's the purpose of salvation that way. No one may boast. And I hope you understand here, the boasting here is in oneself. God set it up this way on purpose so that we couldn't boast whatsoever. So that we would come together, worship on a Sunday morning and say, I'm a Christian. I've been saved by Jesus Christ and His life and death because of faith. And you know how much credit I get? Zero. You know how much credit He gets? He gets all the credit, which is why Paul says, in another place, let no one boast except in the Lord. Because He has done it all from beginning to end. This is why justification is this way. So that He gets all the praise, all the credit, all the glory. And it's our privilege to say it's all because of Him. You say, wow, you didn't contribute anything to your salvation? Exactly. The only thing I contributed to my salvation, as John Stott once said, is the sin from which I needed to be saved. That's what I contributed. Even my faith, as Ephesians 2.8, was, was a gift from God. It's all, be, it's all because of Him. And, and I worship Him and I, I just stand in awe that, I've been, that I have been saved. It's, it's an amazing thing. And someone says, do you understand why He did it? And I say, I, I, I really don't. I really don't except for His glory so I can be a trophy of His grace. And maybe someone will point to me and say, I know how He used to live and now He's not perfect. He still stumbles, but He's, but he's better. That's, that's what God does. That's, that's what God does. And if you're saved, you're trophies of God's, God's grace. God's grace. Let's close in prayer. Father, how we thank You for Your Amazing grace. Father, we thank You for this salvation that is ours in Christ. Father, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our arrogance. And Father, help us to grow in boasting in You. Help us to grow in praising You and worshiping You because You have done. You have called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light that we may sing Your praises. So may we respond as You're calling us to respond. In Jesus' name, Amen.